The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning, everyone. It is really great to be with you, Guy. Thank you for that gracious uh, introduction. Um, uh, as he said, I'm married. You can see on the screen, um, I'm standing there next to my wife, and I have four daughters. Uh, the youngest is 12, but the other three are teenagers, and the one that's 12 is essentially going on 21, so I feel like I've got four teenage girls in the house. I grew up with three sisters and no brothers, so I'm used to being surrounded uh, by women, so I was not surprised that I have, uh, that I have four daughters. Um, been married for 20 years. And uh, this past Saturday marked 10 years that I've been the senior pastor at Calvary Church in Lancaster. Uh, but as Guy said, I've been in ministry uh, for over 20 years, and it's what uh, God, I feel that God has called me to do. And uh, these last 10 years as a senior pastor of Calvary Church has been filled with some of the most challenging yet rewarding things that I've done in my life. And part of the reason it's both rewarding and challenging is because when you're in ministry, whether you're in full-time ministry, or you're volunteering, or you're uh, involved in the work that God is doing, you're in the business of working in the lives of people that he loves and knows and he cares for and he wants to bring about transformation in their life. And that can be messy work. And that can bring about challenges. And for those of you, as you're uh, going through your education here at Karen. Some of you are moving in the direction of full-time ministry. Some of you are going to go into the, the, the business world or the secular world, but going to, you're going to use the foundation that you're getting here to be a part of the work that God is doing, the transformational work that he's doing in people's lives. And there will be times that you will be discouraged. And so this morning, in the brief amount of time that we have together, I want to share with you a question that God used in my life that you, some of you in this room, you might need this question right now, and others, you might need this question at some point down the road. And so I'm just praying that God would use this question, and there might be some of you in this room that God has already used this question and already used this passage of Scripture to transform and to change your life. But when I went off to Columbia International University to go to seminary, I was in my early 20s, and I was excited to go learn about the things of God. And I was excited for what I was going to learn at that university, it's similar to Karen University and their principles and their biblical foundation. And at that time in my life, I was kind of a black and white thinker. And I was hoping that by going to that school, that the professors there and the faculty would there would help me to know and understand what to believe, and then I could go out and minister according to what they had taught me. And CIU was a great school where there was a great amount of agreement in the essentials of the faith. There was a great amount of agreement in what I would call orthodoxy of the faith, what the church has consistently believed for the last 2,000 years. But in the areas of distinctives, Things that might not have the same level of priority or certainty as some of the essentials of the faith. Things about the timing of the return of Christ or the age of the earth. In some of those areas of distinctives, there was not always agreement even among the faculty. And that threw me for a loop. Because at that time in my life, I didn't recognize and I didn't understand that beliefs matter, but not all beliefs matter equally. I didn't understand at that time in my life that there wasn't the same level of certainty with everything that we believe. You see, I'm much more certain about the return of Christ than I am about the timing of his return. But I didn't realize and recognize that at that point. So I wanted somebody to just tell me what to believe and to understand that all beliefs matter equally and then off I could go to minister. And at that time in my life when I wasn't receiving that, 
when I didn't fully understand that yet, it threw me into a crisis of faith. And I'm not overly mystical when it comes to my walk and my relationship with God, but I believe during that time of that crisis of faith that I had, that God used a specific passage of Scripture and a specific question to truly change and transform the direction of my life. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. Going to help us work through this passage briefly, and it's going to lead us to a question at the end of this passage that changed my life, and I hope it will change yours as well. Anytime we are in John's gospel, John was gracious enough to give us a purpose statement for why he wrote his gospel. So anytime you read anything in John's gospel, you should always start at the end. You should always start in John chapter 20, 30 and 31, because he gives us his purpose statement. And with that purpose statement in hand, we can now go to any passage to understand what John is trying to communicate. So at the end of the gospel, he says this. He said, Jesus did many other signs. That's John's word for miracles. He intentionally chose and used that word all throughout his gospel because sign, even though it's a miracle, he used those signs for a specific purpose. Those signs were a means to an end. They pointed to something bigger and grander and greater. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which he didn't write about in his gospel. But these are written, the signs that he chose to write about, they're written so that we, including us, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. So John gives us his purpose statement for writing the Gospels, that he's going to write about signs, he's going to write about miracles that Jesus performed that's going to point to what we should believe about him. Now sometimes we have to be careful and understanding the miracles of Jesus, the signs of Jesus, that we don't misinterpret the purpose that they're there. Did the signs that Jesus performed have a benevolent, kind, loving result when he healed someone, when he fed the crowds? Absolutely. But that was not the primary purpose for why Jesus performed signs and miracles. The signs and miracles that Jesus performed pointed to validating who he claimed to be. His works validated his words. And they pointed people, as John says here, so that we would understand who Jesus is and that we would believe in him. The story goes that there was a family on their way to Disney World for the first time. And the kids were in the car and the kids were excited and it was a long trip down the East Coast and they crossed over the, uh, over the border into Florida and they started seeing signs for Orlando and Disneyland, Disney World wasn't far off. And they're getting closer and closer and they're seeing signs that are uh, directing and pointing them where to go and finally they arrive at Disney World and there's a big sign out front that says, Welcome to Disney World. And the dad pulls over the car and gets the kids out of the car and he goes and he gathers them around the sign that says, Welcome to Disney World. And he takes a bunch of pictures. And after they take pictures by the sign that said, Welcome to Disney World, he gets everybody back in the car and says, Okay, it's time to go home. Can you imagine what the response of those kids would be if the dad did that and said, Hey, we've taken a picture with the sign. Now it's time to go home. The sign is not the end. The sign is not the goal. The sign is a means to an end. It points to something greater. The sign that says, welcome to Disney World, points to Disney World. The signs that Jesus performed pointed to the reality of who he is. And that's what John wants us to understand. 
So with that in mind, we come to John chapter 6. And this is about a year before Jesus' crucifixion. He was still very popular at this point, And the crowds were gathered around him and following him. And he tells us in verse 2 why the crowds were following him. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They saw the signs that he was performing and they were enamored with that. And so they began to follow Jesus. And on this particular occasion in John chapter 6, when the crowds gathered around, it was getting late in the day. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, hey, these people need something to eat. How are we going to feed him? So some of the disciples pull off the first case of bullying that's ever existed, and they confiscate a little boy's lunch. Five loaves and two fish. They steal from this little boy. I don't know why anybody doesn't make a big deal about that in this story. But they steal this boy's lunch. Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish. And they feed the crowd of 5,000 men, probably two or three times uh, the size of that crowd. Some have said, did everybody in the crowd realize that Jesus had performed a miracle? And John seems to indicate that they did. At least most of them did. Because look what it says in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. This is good that the people saw the miracle, the sign that Jesus performed, and it pointed them and helped them to understand something about Jesus, that he is the prophet who has come into the world. But their understanding about Jesus was not what Jesus wanted their understanding to be. So in verse 15, John tells us that perceiving that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people, when they saw him perform this miracle, they wanted their version of a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would meet their temporary needs. He just fed them. So they want to come and make him king because maybe he'll feed them again and again and again. Maybe he'll even, uh, he'll even accomplish a political purpose for them and help them to overthrow Rome. So they came and they wanted to make him king because they saw how he met their temporary needs. And sometimes we do the same thing. Sometimes we follow Jesus because we want him to meet our temporary needs. We want him to heal. We want him to help us to prosper. We even might turn to Jesus for political purposes and political gains. But Jesus' understanding that they don't want, he doesn't want them to come just so he can meet their temporary needs. He withdraws from them. And John tells us as we work through this story that actually that night he walked across the water performing another sign before his disciples and he gets to the other side of the lake. Now this is the next day, verse 26. They come and they're seeking Jesus again and Jesus says this in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. It's a good thing to be seeking Jesus. But he says, you're seeking me not because you saw signs. And I would say, wait a minute, Jesus. That's the very reason why they're seeking you. John has already told us that they're seeking you because of the signs. But Jesus is translating this and understanding that they're seeing the signs that he's performing, but they're not coming to him for the right purpose and the right reason. They want him to meet their temporary needs. They don't see that the signs that he's performing is pointing to who he truly is, and he wants them to believe in him. 
He says, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs that should point to who I am, but you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. I satisfied a temporary need that you had yesterday, so you're seeking me for that again today. So Jesus now wants to transition their thinking and transition their mindset. And he says this in verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes. Don't go after things that are temporary. Don't go after things that you're going to have to go after again and again and again. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's going to use this current contextual concept of the bread and eating and food to help to take them to a spiritual and a deeper level. But do you see the contrast there in verse 27? Don't go after things that are temporary. Don't go after things that will perish, but go after things that will endure. And this is what I will give you. This is what I will provide for you. For those of you going into ministry, for those of you that are ministering on behalf of Jesus Christ and his gospel, be careful if you're using Jesus to point to temporary satisfaction. This is unstable ground to point people towards. If you believe that Jesus is promising health and wealth or a political agenda or things that are temporary on this side of heaven, at some point those things will fall apart. And if we've promoted a Jesus that's just about the temporary, then somebody's faith will fall apart as well. Some of you probably know somebody who has walked away from their relationship with God because something temporary hasn't worked out in their life and they blame God for it. Are there temporary times that God intervenes in our lives? Absolutely he does. But that's not ultimately what he is about. Think of the miracles that he performed. Even the miracles that he performed in a sense were temporary, just like this one. He fed them, but they were hungry the next day. Think of poor Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. Was that uh, something that lasted for all of eternity? No, Lazarus is not sitting among us here today. He died again. One of the few people that ever had to go through that experience twice. He died. Jesus raised him from the dead. And at some point later in his life, poor Lazarus said, here we go again. (laughs) Even raising him from the dead was a temporary miracle that Jesus performed. Let's not... Lay a foundation for ministry just based on the temporary. So Jesus is pointing them to something eternal. So verse 28, as he points them to something eternal, as he points them to something that will endure, they say this to him in verse 28. What what must we do to be doing the works of God? So in verse 27, he says, don't work for the temporary, but work for something that endures. And that's what they pick up on. Okay, Jesus, what work do you want us to do that will endure? What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them in verse 29 and says this, this is the work of God. If you want to know what the work of God is, you want to know what God is about, you want to know what you need to do. Here's the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work that God is doing is bringing about things that are going on in our lives that point to the reality of who Jesus is. 
And the work of God is to believe in him. If you want to work for God, believe in what God has done. Believe in what Jesus' signs are pointing us to. And this is just not just a mental assent, but it is a trust in. It's taking hold of. And the rest of John chapter 6, I believe, is just commentary on what it means to believe in him. And Jesus, as he so masterfully does, he takes the physical context of what's going on there, the feeding of the 5,000, the food, the bread, the loaves, and he's going to use that to help us understand what it means to believe. So Jesus says, the work of God is to believe. And they come back and they say to him in verse 30, this astounding statement. What sign... Do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? You've got to go back in your Bibles to verse 14 and says, They saw the sign that he performed the previous day. How can they come back to him the very next day and say, Jesus, what do you perform so that we know that you're who you say they are? What are you going to do so that we can believe in you? It's astonishing to me that one day later the crowds would come back and say that to him. To give them the benefit of the doubt. I don't necessarily that, that, that I believe that they're forgetting what he did the day before. What I believe they're coming to him and saying is, do it again. You fed us yesterday, do it again today and we'll believe you today. And then do it again tomorrow. And do it again the next day. They're treating Jesus like a genie in a bottle. And we need to be careful that we don't do the same. Jesus, meet my temporary needs. And when you do, then I'll believe. Then I'll follow. And even if he does, then what happens next? We forget or we want him to do it again and again and again. As if they come and say, hey, Moses fed our forefathers for 40 years in the wilderness. You only did it for one day, Jesus. You've got a long way to go. I call these the fickle fans of Jesus. This was the crowds that were very fickle because they had their temporary appetites satisfied. And they said, do it again. What we have to recognize is that our temporary appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied by the temporary. We can eat today and that temporary appetite will be satisfied. But we're going to have to eat again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Our temporary appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied. But Jesus comes and he offers satisfaction for the eternal appetite that God has made and designed us for. So the rest of this chapter is Jesus just trying to help them to understand what it means to believe in him. And he uses the bread language and illustration. Let me just give you a couple quick examples. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's using the physical to talk about the spiritual. Verse 47 and 48. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Again, using the physical to point them to something spiritual. It's interesting how he uses 
the language of the physical and the spiritual almost in parallel. Look at these two verses next to one another. Starting in verse 54, the second verse, the one on the right. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Is Jesus talking about cannibalism? Is he talking about coming in literally feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood? No. And you know what else he's not talking about here in this passage? He's not talking even about communion. He's not instituting communion a year before he dies. That's something he does the night before he's betrayed with his disciples. He's just using a physical analogy to help them to understand what it means to believe in him. What happens when we eat and drink? We're nourished, we're energized physically. So he says in the same way that you're nourished and energized physically by bread and by water, come to me to be nourished and to be energized spiritually. So now look at verse 40 that's next to it. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The result in both verses is the same. Do you see that? Having eternal life and being raised up on the last day. So the way that we get there, the way that we receive that is by belief. It's not, oh, we have to believe here, but also take a bite out of Jesus' leg. No, it's just an analogy to help us understand what it means to believe. Are the crowds confused by this teaching? Maybe. Some of them might be. But I think there's many of them that actually understand what Jesus is saying. That, he's, that they actually understand that he's calling them to something greater and something deeper and something more intimate with him. But again, they're just fickle fans that are interested in just another meal. And look at the response of some of them in verse 60. When many of his disciples read your Bibles carefully, it doesn't say the crowds. It doesn't say the mass group of people. It actually says his disciples, not talking specifically about the 12, but talking about that next concentric circle out. When many of his disciples heard this teaching, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Again, some of them may have just been confused, but I think some of them understood and they just didn't want to follow and to uh, believe in Jesus the way that he's asking. So as a result, verse 66 after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They stopped following Jesus. When he called them to something greater, more than just him meeting their temporary needs, they said, that's not what we signed up for. This is not the Messiah I want. And they turned and they walked away. Some of you have considered walking away from Jesus. Some of you have had a moment, a crisis of faith, where you've considered walking away. Some of you know somebody who has walked away. And it might not be right now, but it might be some point in the future. And let me remind you about something if you choose to turn and you walk away from Jesus. When you turn and walk away from Jesus, you will then be walking towards something else. If you're following Jesus and you stop and you turn your back on Jesus, you have to walk towards something else.
And if you're going to turn your back on Jesus and walk away from him, what are you going to walk towards? What are you going to give your life to instead? Something temporary? Some temporary satisfaction that you might be seeking after in your life? So some of his disciples turn their back on Jesus and walk away. Do you know what Jesus doesn't do in that moment? He doesn't stop and say, okay, guys, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry that the teaching is so hard. Come on back. I'll feed you again today. I'll take care of your temporary needs. I'll satisfy your appetites. That's not what he does. He lets them go. And he turns to the 12. He turns to his inner circle. He turns to the group of guys that he's invested so much in. The group of guys that he know would be so instrumental in the building of his church. And he says this. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to walk away from me as well? It's as if he says, I know that some of you are thinking about it. I know that some of you are considering it. And maybe some of you are right in that spot here today. And Peter as he so often does, becomes the spokesman for the group. And Peter, even though there's so many times that he puts his foot right in his mouth, responds beautifully to Jesus in this moment. It's as if he had been listening to Jesus for these couple years that he had been following him. And he recognized so many times when Jesus was asked a question, Jesus responded to a question with a question. Jesus asked the 12 this poignant and direct question, do you want to go away as well? And Peter responds with a question. And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? If we're going to turn away from you, who or what are we going to turn to? Anything else that we could turn to is going to be something temporary. And so I ask you today, if you're considering walking away from him, or I hope and pray that if there's a time in your life that you would consider walking away from him, that this very question, that God would use this question and burn this into your mind. Because if you're going to turn away from Jesus, who or what are you going to turn to? If not Jesus, then who? If not Jesus, then what? Everything else that you return to will be temporary. I think Peter had already settled it in his mind because he addresses him and he says, Lord. He says, Lord, I've already settled this in my mind. And look what he says. He says, you have the words of temporary life no, you have the words of eternal life. You have something that will endure. You have given to us and provided something to us that is eternal. Will there be heartache? Will there be grief on this side of heaven? Absolutely. I could tell you story after story after story of grief and heartache in this life. My life verse is Jesus saying, in this world you will have trouble. I don't know about you, but that, that's a reality that we experience each and every day. There will be hurt and pain in the temporary. 
But Peter says, you have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe. It's settled in our minds, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Nobody else, nothing else is offering that. Your temporary appetites will never be fully and finally satisfied by something else. So no matter the pain, no matter the struggle, no matter the heartache, no matter what might come your way that might cause you to consider turning away, I hope that God would use for you what he has used for me, this simple question, to whom shall we go? And maybe for some, you need to make it personal today. To whom shall I go if I would consider turning and walking away from him? Life's a challenge. Life's a challenge for me. Ministry is no picnic. I could tell you story after story. People are very fickle. People have their own agendas. People have their own ways to critique and criticize almost weekly, if not daily. But God is at work transforming and changing lives. And he invites us to be a part of it. And there's nothing else that I would rather be a part of giving my life to. Because God is going to be at work. And he'll work through you. He'll work around you. And he will even work in spite of you. But he's going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So we might as well get on board. And I hope that God will use this question. When you need it, it might be today. It might be in five weeks. It might be in five years. But my prayer for you is that God would use it in your life to keep you following faithfully after him. Let me pray for you as we close. Father, thank you for the power of your word. Thank you for how your word tells us why it's there and why it was given. So I pray for each one of these students here today that just in the same way you've used this question in my life, that if it's needed in their life right now, that you would use it in their life. If it's needed some point down the road, that you would use it, you'd burn it into their hearts and minds and it would come back when they would be considering walking away from you, walking towards something temporary, walking towards something that's not eternal, that you would use this question to keep them walking faithfully with you no matter the challenges and the difficulties that they might face. And would you do that for your honor and for your glory in Jesus' name, amen.